and Matt Show, the disc golf podcast you've been looking for. Welcome to episode number five, and that's going to make me laugh because if you are one of our live followers, and I'm sorry to focus on the live sometimes, but they're here now and you're listening later. We actually started up and we got about five minutes in and someone told us the video quality was horrible because we're trying a new restream service. And so anyways, this is a restart. We're going to act like we never had this first five minutes of conversation before. And if you're listening, yeah, if you're listening right now, like live, I mean, later podcast style, you didn't know what we talked about anyways. So Nick, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How about yourself, Matt? That's not what you said last time. No, it's not. No, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I'm doing good. Uh, we had a, kind of our first big technical difficulty that just <laughs> happened, but uh, I think we're going to fight through it. Hopefully we get kind of our audience back and our podcast listeners, like you said, won't know the difference between what happened. <laughs> We've already got followers jumping in, so we appreciate it. Would you guys consider sharing this? It came to my attention that people, even people that I know, like locally, don't even know about this show. So I'm imagining that just means there's millions of people who don't. Would you consider sharing um, this billions podcast? Of yeah, who don't. yeah, billions. There's seven point something. Okay. Yeah. Would you consider sharing it? Whether you're listening to the podcast and, and you want to give us a good review, or or uh, you're on live and you want to share it right now. So Nick, did you get out again and play a round of golf? I did. I actually got to play a full 18 holes at a legitimate country club with Mr. Simon Lazat again. Uh, we went out last Sunday, I think it was. And we both had some time off during the day. He had just filmed his video that went up on YouTube with Gatekeeper Media about kind of like his mindset going into Maple Hill Golds. So he was already out in my area. He texted me saying, what are you doing today? Let's go play some golf. And I said, well, hey, we'll split the difference. There's a course literally right in the middle between Maple Hill and my house. We went to Kettlebrook, went and shot legitimate 18. And my score was a lot higher than my first round back out. But now it was super fun going out with Simon again. Man. So I just saw a ball and chain tournament come up. Have you ever played one of those before? I haven't. I have not either. And they've always been of interest to me. I feel like, and this is, it just seems kind of like a Nick and Matt show thing where like we talked about is golf harder than disc golf and yada, yada. Like maybe we go out and like, I just cream it. Like I play golf because like, I don't know. I play top shot. I'm pretty good. We'll see. (laughs) Anyways, the topics tonight. Uh, just so people can get excited about what they're going to be. And if you're listening to the podcast, you know if you want to stick around or not. Uh, Amateur disc golf tournaments, Mm -hmm. the good and the bad. Like, Nick, how long ago did you stop playing amateur tournaments or divisions? How long ago was that? Technically, my last amateur event was in 2018, the MVP Open AM side. I had won that, and I was content with that being my biggest win in amateur division. So I was like, all right, I'm done. I'm going up to pro full-time now. Wow. And so is there anything that you are missing about the amateur experience? Like, have you thought about that? Or are you like, oh, man, I used to get this or that? Like, is there anything that you're missing out on? No, only in the sense of, like, if you're talking about do I miss any players' packs or anything, not really, because sometimes – like, I remember playing amateur tournaments a long time ago, and my disc would be like a champion boss, which as an amateur, you should not be throwing champ bosses. So I wasn't really too mad about not getting those anymore. I guess I the only tournament that I technically miss is the AM side for the MVP Open because it was such a fun tournament. It's four rounds over three days, most of which being at Maple Hill, and it's just it's a good time. Yeah, I'm still amateur, and I'm rated like I don't even know. 
a 935 and I think my highest rating was like 950, but that's like pure amateur. So like I still play amateur division tournaments and I enjoy it because it gives me something to actually like try to win. Um, so that's one topic. The other is going to be tournament jitters or nerves. So anybody who's listening now that's played disc golf, literally consider that feeling. Everyone knows it. You step up to the putt on the first round of a tournament or a drive, your tee time's up. And you have this heartbeat that's just like, uh, maybe I'm just, exp you know, explaining and defining myself here, but that heartbeat that's pounding in your chest or your breathing gets shallow as you step up to that first putt. Like, how do we handle that? And are, we're not professional, but let's just get into this next idea of who we're having on the show tonight. Who are we having, Nick? We're having on the 2009 PDGA world champion, a very, very obviously great disc golfer, very decorated um, phenomenal teacher of disc golf. He's got tons of YouTube videos out there that really explain how to play, how to do everything in the sport. So uh, we're super excited to actually have on Dave Felbert tonight. Matt, you and him have been talking over the last week, and you were the one who actually made this come into fruition with him. <laughs> so last but not least, let's welcome Mr. Dave Felbert. Yeah, so Dave's on. Hey, Dave, how are you doing? How you doing? 2008, though. 2008. Sorry. Man. 2009 was Avery. 2008. That's my apologies. 2008. Before everyone in the comment section blows up on me. 2008. <laughs> so welcome to the show. So these topics that we're talking about tonight, I have a feeling you've got some good input that you can share on them, but we're not going to jump right into them quite yet. I just want to say if you're one of our followers or you're on iTunes listening to the podcast or wherever you are, we've got it everywhere. Um, would you consider sharing this? Um, it's, it's a way for us to help spread the love. We have people that are telling us we have great content. I don't know if we bought into it yet or not, Nick, you bought into it. Is this good content? I think so. I all mean, right. the, the YouTube comments say they are, so <laughs> we all, we well, can always think of ways that we're doing something wrong, but for the most part, we have gotten a lot of on. good comments. Yes. And you said a lot and I, I wasn't going to touch on this, but it being being in the limelight, if you will, just a little bit, you put yourself up for scrutiny. And Dave, I'm sure you have you ever been scrutinized for anything in the disc golf community? If I breathe, <laughs> <laughs> if you breathe. So I, I'm getting royally roasted on YouTube because of our most popular um, interview with Hannah Macbeth. Shout out to her for coming on our show, like the second or third second episode, second right? Week, yeah, and. People are just blown away at how good she was at communicating what she was saying. And here I am. Now, we had her on for like an hour and four or two hours. Two hours and 20 minutes. And Dave, there's a three minute section where I have my phone in my hand and I have someone out in my driveway buying a vehicle that I had for sale. And they're literally like, I'm here right now to pick up the car that I just bought from you. Like, give me the keys. And I'm here on a show like this and I'm texting and I'm like responding. Like I'm trying to show that I'm interested in what Hannah's saying, but there's, there's three minute clip. That's like getting over 10,000 views on YouTube that people are just like going crazy over. Cause she says some amazing things and they look at me and this whole time my head's like facing off camera and I'm texting and they're like, this guy's a horrible host. Like no one should be running a show like you, Bob. Like, it's just like, I'm getting roasted. Well, just look at Terry Miller's show last week when I was on there. He couldn't connect with me, and he forgot he was on camera. So he's sitting there going, 
oh, oh, he's looking at the thing. <laughs> and, you know, I watched it back later. I, there's like a five minutes of him just like completely rubbing his head. And t- you could hear him talking to me like, Dave, just push the Skype button. <laughs> <laughs> so, oh, that's it, awesome. It, don't worry. It, it, you, you know, you have to be on the spot. It's not like uh, we have big enough podcasts where you have a back end crew supporting you right now. <laughs> well, <laughs> like, you know, right and here. thank you for saying that. I've actually been considering like I'm here because we're doing a live broadcast, like with cameras, as well as an audio podcast. Like I'm trying to like handle switching audio levels from Skype calls and videos that we show and games and comments, live streaming. I mean, it is a lot. I thought about hiring someone to sit off camera and just do all of that for us so we could focus on the talk. Joe Rogan has Jerry, you know, Mm -hmm. Jerry does a good job. He brings up facts. He checks facts when Joe's talking. And I think that's why his podcast. Oh yeah, exactly. I I actually, I love watching the Joe Rogan experience just in the sense of that. It's very well ran. It's very smooth. And yeah. So eventually we'll get to that point. So Dave, I I feel like when Nick says, you know, 2008 world champion, or he said 2009 and you corrected him, but is that the, and I say this with all respect, is that the only world title you have? I feel like when I think of Dave Feldberg, for some reason, I think, no, you have more world titles. That's just pro open, right? That's just pro open. I got like 19 different titles. (laughs) All right. So do you, do you want to list some of your favorites? Uh, Which disc golf achievements? Some of my favorites is, Many, many disc golf champion and masters and open. I mean, I've won all the field events in open and masters. Nice. And then I, you know, won all, I've won doubles in mixed, doubles in divisional, the doubles in divisional age, you know, so won a bunch of that stuff over the years. But I don't really think that, you know, if you think about the world championships back in the day, the world championships was not the biggest deal. It was just one tournament. We were on tour all year and maybe you played good that week. But it wasn't the end-all, be-all. And I think that people in disc golf tend to measure players by their win at the World Championships when it should be stats in disc golf that measure – sorry about the glare on my face. I'll fix that. Stats that measure um, whether or not how good you are overall. And I think that that's what we're missing in disc golf is that we tend to not have that. We tend to have um, a lot of people who just judge like a couple major events and what we should have is wins, major wins, national tour wins, average finish, you know, average cash position, all these different factors that could be going in that all the PG has the stats. So we know, I mean, Paul McBeth has broken lo- almost all my records. Mm-hmm. He lets me personally know with tech. Dang when he Paul one. McBeth. Yeah. <laughs> right. But, but the answer is who else knows that? Yeah. Nobody. And I told that to Paul when he sends me a text and says, Oh, I just passed your national tour wins. I'm like, that's cool, Paul, but until the PGA or somebody cares, then you're just breaking records nobody even knows exactly. about. Exactly. You know, and I, and, and the fact that we can't go on PDGA and say who's the all-time national toilet leader and who's the all-time major leader and who won the most A-tiers, it's kind of sad, actually. But you know what's cool? Yeah. You know what's cool, though, too? Mm-hmm. Paul Paul what? knows those titles, apparently. <laughs> Enough to, like, that, yeah. that's, that's kudos to you, man. He knows who has it. He's going to text you and let you know. Yeah, well, we go, you know, way back, and and you got to think when Paul made his, you know, debut, I was the guy that was number one. You know, he, I was the one that he was having to beat, and to become number one, he had to beat me to win his first Worlds, where I took second. You know, so, so I, I at Maple Hill can remember, and I don't know why it's vivid to me, because I guess Maple Hill or the Vibram Open is vivid because it's an experience unlike any other tournament, and I remember sitting there at hole eighteen. And just watching players come in, and this was a long time ago. I don't know. I've been playing 14 years. It was probably 11, 12 years ago. And I remember someone saying, oh, like, that's Paul McBeth coming up 
Fairway 18. And I'm like, who's Paul Macbeth? I can clearly remember that. So all these modern disc golfers coming on are like, what do you mean? Who's Paul Macbeth? But I literally didn't know. And he had kind of longer hair and yeah, Snoopy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I can remember that period where you're saying like, yeah, like I knew you, I knew Avery. And those are the two that stand out in my head. But um, can I ask this question? Because I think it, I don't know if I've ever heard this and it's, it, we kind of joked, Nick, wasn't it with Hannah? What kind of show is this? Is it a therapy show? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think it was with Hannah. We were talking about how this kind of eventually turns into a therapy where we ask the person on our show a million questions <laughs> instead of talking about the topics that we think we're going to talk about. Because people don't know you for you. They know you as Dave Felberg. And we actually did this when we were talking to Hannah. Like, there's Paul McBeth, McBeast, and there's Paul McBeth, like, her husband. <laughs> and your wife maybe experiences similar things. There's Dave Felberg, world title disc golfer. And then there's Dave Felberg, her husband. But let me ask you this question. What do you think it's, I feel like you might know this, but what do you think is the most misunderstood thing about you? Because you obviously hear, as we said, you or said earlier, like sometimes breathing is enough to tip somebody off for like you. And I, I was just, I would say the number one, the number one thing that I think is misunderstood about me is people think I'm a whiner and they labeled me as like a complaining whiny type pro. Mm -hmm. But there's a difference between complainers and action takers, right? And yeah, if if me and my group didn't whine and then push to get on the board and change the sport and get the national tour going and get all these different rules like rules, test and dress codes and standards, then we wouldn't be where we are today. Mm -hmm. We needed to complain and whine back then because the standards were so poor that we were trying to be the first professionals playing disc golf. There was no professional standard. Yep. And so we came off as the touring guys all complain, but we weren't complaining. We just wanted to see the sport get to where it is today or close to where it's getting today. And we didn't, we were just ahead of our curve. We wanted to be touring professionals. We wanted to play a professional game and we couldn't get that every time. So we would point out, Hey, that tee pad is, doesn't even have a mat or the, the basket's broken, or you didn't mark the, the OB. How are we supposed to know where the line is? You know, yeah. stuff like that. And they'd be like, Oh, that Felber's complaining about my course. He, he was at my course and said, I didn't do it right. You know, and I think that that is a lot of the thing. And I think because of our opinion was so valued, since it was not always a positive opinion, it, they, they held on to the negatives as society seems to do. And I think that that is probably one of the mis most misunderstood. I wasn't complaining because I was upset. I was complaining because I wanted to see it get better. And then I took action for the last decade trying to make that happen. And I think, you know, and that's the difference. Yeah. And I think mm -hmm. what kind of where people would see the issue of that in my generation of disc golfers you're one of the OGs, you know, like when I got into the sport, like Matt was saying, who's Paul Macbeth kind of when I got into the sport was, you know, who's Dave Felberg because Paul Macbeth was the guy. Nico was the guy. Shushrik were the people who were kind of like the top dogs. And you were obviously, you were always still competitive with them, but it was like, when I looked at the number one, I thought of Paul. And so now with all the cameras that we have on courses where people see that complaining, complaining side of you, it's because of how much technology has evolved compared to, let's say, 10, 15, 20 years ago, and you actually being able to say all these things and make constructive criticism in our sport and actually push things forward. I think people fail to realize that because, at least for me and a lot of my friends, we're the younger generation of disc golf right now coming up into the scene. And it's kind of like that's a bad rap that you potentially have for an awful reason. You know what I mean? Because I. I and then the other part. Yeah. 
go ahead. The other part of it is, is that we were playing for lunch, <laughs> literally. Yeah. <laughs> right. These kids today are playing for contracts. It's a much different situation. We were literally having to write checks for our entry fee on Saturday that we couldn't back mm-hmm. up knowing we would cash on Sunday and going to the TD and saying, here, just take, can we buy the check back? You don't want to waste your time going to the bank, <laughs> but we knew there was no money in yep. there. And that's how thin we were on making it. And I think that let's bring up Nico instead of just talking about me. Cause I heard you guys mm-hmm. say Nico, people used to say, Oh, Nico, he punches the ground. He gets so upset. The kid was paying for his, his, you know, little brother's food and his mother's rent. And, you know, if he missed that putt, his family got less food, yep. period. You know yep. what I mean? That's a reality that people didn't say. And they'll say, well, you guys chose to do that, right? But if we didn't choose to do that, we wouldn't be where we are today. No, exactly. And I think that, that, that that's the thing, you know, no one forced us to live off chicken sandwiches for McDonald's for 99 cents, but it's what had to be done to make it to the next That stop. is an interesting, yeah. very interesting perspective. And again, on the Matt, the Nick and Matt show therapy session, that that's it. I mean, perspective is everything. As you just played out, Nico punching the ground. When I saw that, when I was again, back 12, 14 years ago, and I saw him doing that at Maple Hill, I said, I don't want my kids or any other kids watching him play because he's a bad role model. Now, but you can provide perspective to it. And it, it's a much different thing. So I appreciate you doing that. Cause I think even Nick and I were talking this week about, um, I think it was D glow and how last year, I think it was the tournament director. We don't need names involved, but it was Paul, Paul made a statement of some sort. And again, was it actually a statement or was it a social media post? But everything's the same nowadays, right? Whether you say like, Hey, these lines aren't painted or that everyone thinks you're whiny or complaining. Um, or if Paul says it, everyone either bows down and says, Oh yeah, this tournament director must be horrible. Or, or Paul is a whiny baby. It goes one or the other. It's all extremes. And so to your point, thank you for sharing about how that's the most misunderstood thing that you believe that people have about you. So, yeah, I just passionate about sport growing and you, when you wear your passion on the sleeve and, and the last thing I want to say about this guy, say, well, yeah, sure. Thing? Yeah, yeah. One thing people have to realize, even if it's me, Paul Macbeth, it could be Ron Russell from the past. We meet thousands of disc golfers, right? So that one experience that you had with me, for 20 to 50 seconds where I signed your disc and you asked me three questions. I may have had bad lunch. I might have indigestion. Mm -hmm. My wife might've just yelled at me because I did something wrong. My mom might've just been upset with me on the phone and you caught me and, and you're judging my whole character on that 30 second interaction. Exactly. And that's not fair because a, I don't even remember it. So the next time I see you, I don't even remember the interaction, but you do because you had the interaction with somebody you kind of looked up to. So you put it in your memory. Yep. I don't have that interaction. So next time I see you, I didn't even know you were upset last mm-hmm. time. And then you carried on for eight years and then <laughs> blab out on social media one yeah. day. You know, and I think that that's what we see in disc golf. People have to realize it's not personal, but we meet a lot of people and you never know what kind of day we're having. That's Yeah, I think that's one of the tough things in our sport right now is there's so much there's so much room for spectators and everything like that to meet the pros. And what's really hard about that is right after the end of a round, Someone Paul could have played an awful round. You could have played an awful round. Someone could have played an awful round, but then 15, 20, 30 people want your autograph. And so now you're thinking about your round. You're thinking about how am I going to pay for lunch tomorrow if I don't make those putts? You're thinking about your next round. You're already trying to get into the mindset of it, but you have people berating you and, hey, I need this guy's autograph. You might be a little bit flustered. Your demeanor or your, yeah, your demeanor kind of comes off as bad. And then that's what they see out of it. You come back the year after 
you don't remember a single thing exactly what you're saying. So, but to your point, Dave, now people aren't necessarily, some are, but now people aren't necessarily playing for lunch money. We have Paul Macbeth, Ricky. And, <laughs> and so now I, I do think, I don't want to say it's easier for them in sport, but it is easier in the sense of it. It's to your point, they throw a bad shot. They're upset because of their competitive nature. They're not upset because, oh man, now I don't get that extra $200. Like it's a totally different mindset. So again, thank you for sharing your opinion on that. Um, let me follow that up by asking you this because you've been doing disc golf for how long? Like just the years. 24 years. Say that again. 24. 24. 40. 24. What? 24. 24. <laughs> 24. 24 years. I, I went on tour 21 years ago. Wow. So, yeah. So, I mean, we're talking to someone who has experience here. And so you've been doing disc golf a lot of your life. Um, but now you're doing disc golf in a different way. And I don't necessarily mean competition. I mean, just the community of it. You're actually doing a business and it's rebranded recently. People would recognize the name, I think, I think because you did a good job at marketing it. It was the next gen tour um, changed now to the amateur national disc golf tour. Is that correct? <laughs> National, national okay, amateur I flipped it. I, I apologize. <laughs> I wanted you to be able to say it out loud. Um, so that's what you're doing now full time. Is that correct? Is that what you would consider full time? Uh, I wake up every single day at, you know, regular morning time, pop a coffee, stay out till dark doing work every day. So well, yeah. that was going to be my question. And I don't know if you want to break down and elaborate any more, but what does your day look like um, as someone who works in the disc golf realm? Like what is your typical day? Your typical day? Uh, I, I, I wake up, see the family. My wife is usually super nice, make me coffee or food. And then I don't have an office yet. So I drive to town to give my wife space for the child so he can have his naps and all that, not mess with his flow. And I go sit in my car in the parking lot, different parking lots each day, plug in my phone. And then I just go down. First, I check the emails then I go through all the disc golf scene, do refunds, then I start contacting TDs, placing orders, contacting parks. You know, it's just endless, endless, endless processing events, inventory, shipping. I mean, I can go on and on, but it's commercials, disc golf pro tour, you know, partnerships with 32 companies. I mean, I, you know, it's a lot of work. <laughs> but I had to put a staff together to help me out. Well, I know? was just going to yes. say, you got to have help because the it was just a funny, ironic thing I thought of. Disc golfers must be the best ever at understanding like shipping costs and how to package discs and everything else. Yeah, right. Like who, who, what other sport do you become so good at shipping other than disc golf? I mean, it's like whether you're a TD or you're just like selling discs or whatever. I mean, it's like incredible. Pro shipper is Devin Owens. <laughs> nice. I'm going to give him pro ship and he carries around a printer and he's got a stamp account. And he literally prints his own labels and then puts it right in the blue box. <laughs> That's awesome. Even if it's like a five dollar package. Yeah. I'm so glad we had you on the show tonight, Dave, because there's these little nuggets that you're going to share like that, that just made it all worth it. Like pro shipper goes to Devin, Devin Owens. Owens. <laughs> that is excellent. Um, but seriously, shipping is an interesting thing that disc golfers have to learn. It's like, I can tell you what it costs to ship one disc, two disc, three disc, and how to do it the cheapest way. Um, all right, cool. So is there anything that you want to do in a, a shorter update here for like what you've got going on that you'd like to communicate before we get into our other topics? I just want to say the tour was is solid this year. NADGT's got like 40 more events, qualifiers. We're selling out every weekend. They're selling out. So, you know, you want to get registered this year. It's not like the years past with the next mm -hmm. gen. 
and we're being the only game in town. I mean, we're going to have the national championships in Austin, Texas on schedule at the end of October, early November. It'll be the biggest amateur tournament again there is in the world. It may be the biggest pro payout this year since we were only second to pro worlds last year. Um, so that that could happen. We could have the highest pro payout at an amateur tournament in the, in for the year. And, you know, people are really excited about registering and getting in. Our TDs are getting more comfortable with the events. They're all B tiers now. And then also we've introduced the putting championships. It's getting a light response, but it's because people want to get out now. It's designed for the winter. So we just want to run it this summer. If only a few people play, we'll have make them have a good time, do a big final at the end. But we want to prepare them for the winners because each winner we're going to do a championship with thousands of dollars. For what, what happened when COVID was announced, <laughs> COVID-19, and where did your mindset go? Were you like, is this real? And then you waited. And like, when was that like crucial moment where you're like, yeah, this is not going to work this year. When they made them, well, I knew they were going to make the May announcement. I could just feel it in April and I just knew it was coming. So I just was outsmarted the game a little bit. And I had 38 events during that time. I, re I rescheduled them all for later in the summer. So I've only had one event out of the whole season, not happen. Hmm, gotcha. All, I got all my events rescheduled. I got with the state coordinators before they closed them down and said, hey, we're not doing anything anymore. It's crazy. So basically, and a lot of people made the mistake of they had like a March, April event. They scheduled it for May. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then they were, they were stuck. I was smart enough to have my TD scheduled for July and August. Yep. And you know, that way I knew if there was going to happen, that's their best chance. So I, I, we were kind of a little freaked out. The only thing it made me do is push the putting mm -hmm. forward. So that it came out now. So people that are on lockdown still have a chance to go out and compete in some way. And I know there's a lot of other putting contests, but again, not like we're doing it. It's not nationwide, every state, national payouts, qualifiers, d professional DJs the yeah. whole day. I mean, it's a, it's a completely the organization. Yeah. It's, it's organized. Obviously it's professionally organized. So. Yeah, I think, well, first yeah. of all, congratulations on that. Having the top payouts, even even being competitive with pro payouts just shows how much dedication, how far you're trying to push your amateur tour on it. And I think that's incredible for the amateurs that will hopefully see this video eventually is that you guys have what wasn't there 10 years ago. You have these people who really want to up your game. And so now for all these amateurs, hopefully that will be able to make use out of these tools that are given to them, even just as something as simple as now we got the uh, COVID putting soon. It's going to be the winter putting championships that you're doing. And then all these incredible yeah. events that are all B tiers and above, like that's insane. I remember last year, I think you guys ended in Arizona and the winner got $5,000 for winning the next gen event. Yeah, it was, it was in Austin, but yeah, it okay. was 5,000 for first, but I did a full payout of 50 K. Yeah. Um, and then just people just turn a lot of people declined. So we turned 26 pro and played out like 30 K. Yeah. Is your goal but, to want you know, to make pro disc golfers turn amateur? Is that your goal? <laughs> Cause Nick's uh, over here. Nick's yeah, over no, here. Yeah, I mean, do I, do I go back now? Well, you, you know, to, to lead into the topic you're going to go into, which is amateur mm -hmm. disc golf. That's what I'm trying to do is understand. And this is going to make some people upset with Dave, <laughs> but you, uh, you breathed uh, on our episode. Like, like you. Yep. I'm breathing. Here we go. <laughs> A lot of people think they're pro, they're not. Mm -hmm. And they sign up for professional and they're wasting their time and money because they want to be a part of the professional fun ring or whatever it is. But eventually that burns out. Most of them don't stick with it many years. Their wives get mad because they're losing much money in their weekends. And basically they used to be really good and respected and now they're the bottom of the barrel. So basically I want to give that player, which I call the 960 to 990 player, something to do because Going to a tournament at 990 means you're donating mm -hmm. these days. 
even at local levels now, you know, and so there's really no place for a person who has got a family and a job and doesn't have time to be playing every single day. You know, that 980 guy might be 1020 if he committed every single day of his life to disc golf like Paul McBeth or any of his mm -hmm. others, but he's not given that chance. And if you're the, if you're at that level in darts, bowling, ping pong, badminton, I don't care what it is. And you walk into your, your tournament locally, people are like, yeah, Bob's here. What? You know, but now it's like that guy walks up and he's like, oh, I have to play pro now. People won't even talk to me. I got to play with the guy who doesn't even know the rules. I'm in the last card and I'm teeing at seven in the morning because I'm in second to last yep. place. And it's just not an experience for that level of player. And I think that that's what's been missing. I'll give you a little stat. And I can't tell you when it was, but in the last 10 years, a uh, stat was run on the PDGA where 40% of players rated 940, 980 did not renew after two years. Oh, wow. Yeah. And so that's obviously starting to tie into the PDGA. Um, can I, let's go ahead and transfer over to the topic so we can actually really get down and dirty with it. Yeah. And let's spend, um, let's spend like, I don't know, 10 or 15 minutes here, like talking about the, the ins and outs. So here's the first topic of the night guys. And thanks for sharing your opinions uh, or your updates. I should say, now you're going to share your opinions. <laughs> um, the first topic we're going to talk about is amateur disc golf tournaments the good and the bad. Would you comment if you're live right now, or if you're watching later um, on YouTube or in the podcast, would you comment? What do you not like about amateur tournaments or amateur division during a tournament? Um, comment what you think is awesome about it. Nick already shared if there was any things that he's missing out on. I've got my things that I do not like about amateur tournaments. Um, and I am an amateur, so I feel like I have a voice to speak here. Um, but I hope we can have some good back and forth on this. So the good and the bad, first of all, can you just give me like a one or two liner Dave on what's the difference between a pro and a, an amateur? A tournament uh, just, or just in or general, a pro player and a and an amateur player. Uh, there is no difference. They pay the same amount except for 25. There's a $25 difference. Okay. And you're talking specifically for your, uh, championship, right? No, I'm saying for the PDGA. Yeah, signing up for the PDGA. Box. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay. That's yeah, what so separates you, a pro. And a yeah. <laughs> there you in go. In our sport, technically <laughs> that is, I think it's the same thing in skating. All you got to do is just sign up to be a professional and there I you go. go. You go around and tell all your buddies that you're a professional disc golfer. Yeah, I go plenty of tournaments where 970 guys are winning amateur and 910 guys are in my division. So yeah. can I ask, what's your opinion? Mm -hmm. Nick Nick can answer this too. Like, what's your opinion then when you're actually a pro? And I'm not, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings here, but like, when are you actually pro? Do you want the answer? Yes, I want like your the, answer, Dave. I'll give you the correct answer. It's not Dave Felber's answer. It's called Webster's Dictionary. <laughs> a professional is someone who makes a living or their livelihood from the activity they're participating in. Okay. That's interesting. Okay. Until you, until you make a full living and pay all of your bills with disc golf, you are not a professional player. Okay. So that you are. A hot yeah. So that mm -hmm. excludes a lot of people who aren't on tour. A lot of people who are not on tour because I'll give kudos to the people on tour that are actually traveling around, driving in their cars, sleeping in them, eating, like you said, their lunch money from the tournaments. Like, mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say you're right. That is professional. Um, now, there's professional skill level. Mm -hmm. in that professional yes, player. and I was just going to say, yep. so Nick here can compete at a fairly high level um, at a, a pro tournament. And I think there are classifications, right? Regional, and then you got local, and then you got yep. national, like yep. what we'd consider a pro right. level. Um, Nick, uh, once again, because we know you love to talk about it. What are you rated? 990. 990. Dave, right off the cuff, 
is that pro rating or not? Nope. Okay. So what do you think as far as a rating would go that you would have to, you could earn your living off of it to tour? 1025. Okay. I was going to say 1020 plus was going to be my man, my answer to that. That's when you can actually consistently place well at all the tour events and be able to make even a small living at that point. You know, I think the 1040 plus guys are the guys who can actually make a living. Anyone below that, I think is still in a slight struggle in certain areas of trying to make a full on living with it. Now, to be very clear, I'm 10, I'm 1023. I could have said 1020, but I'm 1023. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah. I said 1025. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And to be clear, Nick can whoop my butt every time we go out, except for every now and then when he's having an off round. So he's, he's, he's like, he should be able to win cash and maintain whatever level he wants yep. and get a chance to play against Paul if he wants, but he should be able to play against you and win money. That's how it is in other sports. And, and Nick's claims to fame, he did get to play against Paul, feature or the live round at MVP because he was the After AM winning, side winner. Yeah. <laughs> After winning an AM side event. I, I think kind of going back to Matt's question, you know, Dave obviously gave the answer of what a legitimate professional is. And I, I figured he was going to do that. And so I was going to give you the answer of what, like, kind of in the sport of disc golf, we look at a professional disc golfer as. And I think that's someone who consistently cashes at their either local, national, or major events. Um, obviously, Dave's answer is the full-on correct one, where it's, if you can make a living out of it, you are a professional disc golfer. But when I'm in my local tournaments, you know, I should cash every time with kind of the skill level that I'm at right now. And so do I consider myself a local pro? Yes, absolutely. I've cashed in one pro tour event, and it was at my home course here at Maple Hill. You know, I made 400 bucks off of it. Obviously, that tournament happens once a year. I can't live off of 400 bucks a year. If that's the only event that I can cash out when it comes to being on the tour, then yeah, I'm not a professional disc golfer. So, all right. Well, Nick, we don't need semi pro. I don't want to say yes. that, but the word is semi pro. People get their feelings hurt. It's semi pro. Yes. That's the word you're looking for. And it, it just is in sports like AAA baseball yeah. or something. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, it, it, it is what it is. AAA baseball players, pretty good. Yep. If you and him went out, you, you wouldn't be able to hit his ball. No, exactly. Pitcher, you know what I mean? But he's not pro. Exactly. Okay. He's semi. We're enough beating Nick down here. No, 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 no. This is this because because <laughs> no, people, not, people don't that. understand that though. Is <clears throat> that the semi pro? Because we have a lot of good players here in Massachusetts, yeah. and there are a lot of good nine ninety to ten ten rated players out there. But when it comes to the actual skill level and professional, like being a legitimate professional, the you know how much better Dave is. If Dave and I were to go out and play one on one right now, how much better Dave is is astronomical when it comes to, especially cons- you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Especially what, when it comes consistently. What's the rating say? If he says he's a thousand and you're nine ninety, what is that? Like about three strokes per round? Yeah. I was going to say it's about three and a half strokes per round. And so if we're playing a three round tournament, he should technically beat me by nine or double digits. And that's significant. That's oh, yeah. That's the dip. Yeah. For yeah, sure. In ball golf, if you were more than 10 away from me, you wouldn't make the cut. Exactly. Exactly. So, okay, we, we, we're on topic to talk about the topic, which is amateur tournaments and divisions, which is fine. Cause I, I appreciated that conversation. That's a whole, uh, sound clip in itself there. I'm glad. And I'm, I appreciate that we talked about it, but let's ask this. I'm going to ask Nick first, mm-hmm. what's the best tournament you've ever played and what made it the best? Like, do you have one in your head? I, I have one. If you, if you got to think I can kind of, are we talking See this word, I got to break down your question. Pro or is am. It ex- Pro or am right now. Is it from the experience or the actual how? It's all combined. 
You walked away and you said that's the best tournament I've ever played. Um, or I was a part of. Let's see. Shoot. Either. How about just start naming off your top three? Okay. So Deglo, I went to Deglo last year, Michigan. Um, MVP Open Am side, 2018. Um, main reason because I won it, <laughs> and then 2018 and 2019 MVP Open. One because 2018 I got to play with Ricky, Paul, and Chris, and then 2019 I cashed and. Okay. It's Maple Hill. So that's a, that's okay. So you had pro tournaments in there and you had an amateur tournament and you said mainly because you won it. So what it sounds to me like what you're saying for you, a good tournament experience is who you're playing with Mm -hmm. and whether you performed well. And I'm assuming if you placed well, the title. Yeah. But when I said D glow, that was in the sense of, I loved playing there. I didn't cash at that event, but I'm sponsored by the underground team. Discraft's factory is up in Michigan. So I got to meet all the disc people behind the scenes at Discraft. Okay. And that's what made that experience. And it was an experience. Yes. And I think that's huge. Experience is huge for anything. Um, Dave, can you remember? And now people are going to hate you because you didn't pick their tournament. But what is one of the best or the top three best? I'll say experiences at a tournament you've ever had. And what made it good? Uh, Japan Open. Okay. Number one. Hands down, not even close. Was that because of the um, travel, the whole aura of it, like where you're there, or what? It was the tournament itself. It's the whole experience that you said. The experience. Mm-hmm. It's the only tournament I've ever been to where the guy in ninetieth is treated the exact same as Ken Climo. <laughs> um, I was just out at right. the Las Vegas Challenge mm-hmm. before this whole COVID nineteen came around, and uh, they announced there that Japan Open is back. I forget what year it is, but it's coming up. Twenty twenty one. 2021 and um all i can say is it's their culture over there too like they're like bowing to me and everything while i'm like (laughs) checking out their table like you're right it's an amazing thing well it's just that you know that's the whole point of what i do is that i want everybody to get this red carpet experience that nick gets an mvp that's why he likes it okay so we're going to talk about that he got that at the glow because he's discraft underground so he liked it you're right right? and so I want everybody to get that. Japan Open is the only tournament I've been to where the guy that's rated 840 signed up at the bottom will say that the staff and the spectators and everybody involved treated him as if he was a world champion. Right. And I think that that is what people are looking for. And, I, you know, I can name some other tournaments that have, have got close to that, but most of them are overseas. Okay. So let me ask you this. Uh, and this is going to get on to a hot topic here in just a second. But let's mm-hmm. just let's just name off some of the things that are part of amateur disc golf tournaments. Okay. Because that's what we want to kind of focus on. We we have to contrast with pro because that's, that's how you can tell the difference. But at an amateur yeah. division or an amateur only tournament, here are some things that I see, right? Great player packs. Um large funny money payouts or payouts in generals of some sort. Okay. Uh, and I'll say it this way, a bunch of CTP prizes, multiple rounds typically are included. Um, tea times are often something that I think people enjoy. Um, it's an experience. How about a meal now being close to again, the Vibram open or MVP open now, um, Steve Dodge always found and i think i asked him once what makes a tournament special what takes it to that next level and he says have food <laughs> and i don't think he's yeah, all wrong of our, all, all of our regionals have food at the national i feed you every every meal lunch and dinner and breakfast so you while. agree so, so you agree yeah you don't want to leave the property 
that's what makes a good tournament. You can stay there and enjoy what the TD spent his time to set up so you could enjoy his pro shops, his side games, his camaraderie that he brought together all these people yeah. instead of you rushing off the property and getting your food and rushing back just to your route. Yep. So yeah, that's a huge Right. Thing. So again, if you're if you're checking us out right now on YouTube or the podcast and you want to send us a message, what do you like? What are the special parts of a tournament for you? What are the features that you look for? And um I think one other that I just skipped over is and an efficiently run tournament. And what does that mean to me? That means like there's no massive lines with like disorganization. It's like your time is spent efficiently um, to where even during like lunch, they'll be like, hey, we're going back out in like 45 minutes. And that's what it is. It's not like, oh, it turns into an hour and a half or two. I mean, if your ratings aren't up by, by, by mid lunch, you're not doing a good job. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. For tournaments, I, like two rounders in one yeah, day. I mean, People are like, oh, my God, it's so difficult. I'm not even good on the computer and on my phone with a 100-person tournament. I can have all ratings and all the scores updated 15 minutes into lunch. You know what I mean? Yep. It's not difficult anymore. Well, I was just going to say anymore is key, and I think we're going to – I really believe we're going to see because I know we were just talking to Matt Kruger a couple weeks ago. If you want to check out that um, interview and discussion, go back a few weeks' episodes. Um, but they're going to have it all integrated with the UDISC app. I mean, mm -hmm. like – right around the corner here where like you submit it and it's done like and i'm gonna okay this is another topic that needs to come up first of all i we're gonna get to it but it's gonna be on tournament directors and like why are they not paid and why should they be paid and what is it damaging what is what is damaging the game of disc golf more than tournament directors that aren't taken care of and I hot take right there, Nick, I, I really believe yeah. tournament directors are going to burn out. And we're going to talk about that. But before we get to that, Nick, what's the greatest player pack you've ever received? Can you think of one? I know you're a pro now. Uh, shoot. No, I, I can't think of the greatest one. What makes we... a good player pack? What makes a good oh, player you pack? Know what? Do, yeah, you want, like, so, do you want the star boss over and over and over? No. So back in 20, let's say 2014, when the MVP opened at the AM side, I think we got a really nice like Vibram sweater along with four discs, one of them being a super collectible disc. They're all Vibram discs, and back then I didn't care what I threw. So if I got like an Ibex, it was a decent mid-range. Um, but we got like shirts. We got old Vibram open DVDs, um, shirts, uh, buttons, pins, sure. and everything mm -hmm. like that. And so I guess technically that would be my favorite but, players pack. But, was, okay, so that was your favorite. But yeah. what do you think? makes a good player pack like do you want discs people do, do you want discs over and over every tournament you play no not necessarily i think people always said <laughs> if i'm gonna pay 75 dollars to play an amateur event i want the players pack to be worth 75 dollars and i think that at some times doesn't need to be the case but in like that event the vibram open i was talking about the amp side just that vibram sweater i wore that for like over three years you know i still have it probably tucked in away in a bin somewhere that one piece of clothing but made that player's pack worth it but what if every single time you played the mvp open now you got that same sweater like you're every you're just gonna have yeah. stacks of sweater like okay so i'm ready to jump into this just a little bit because i got to get this off my shoulders like dave what other tournament experience outside of disc golf i'm talking like and maybe you don't know running bicycling bowling anything else where yeah. where you sign yeah. up and you pay a whatever the fee is and you expect to get merchandise at or double what you entered with? Like, what other tournament experience? Yeah, zero. Where does this happen? And and I'm gonna get on my soapbox right now. The, I'm not against player packs happening, 
But there's a much deeper problem here because the PDGA, and I'm not speaking for or against the PDGA, I work in good relationship with them, but they have right now requirements for player packs. And I'm sure there's something that I'm not understanding. You actually were on the PDGA board for a while. Maybe you can speak to where that like originated from, why there's a requirement for that. Because I think, and then I'll shut up, I think that there should be an option when I'm signing up for an amateur tournament to pay less and not take an amateur player pack. That is correct. So the deal is, is they thought that the more you gave out, the more you could grow. And it just got out of control. Mm -hmm. Right. And now I'm in a position by running a tour where I have to give out a, you know, a player package more than the entry fee and pay out the biggest payouts that anybody's ever seen. You know, and then I get these people like, well, I won my division. I only got 45 bucks. And I'm like, well, what do you want me to do? The PDGA wants me to pay 50 percent of the field. I can't give the guy in his last cash three bucks. I got to give him something so he can win something. You know what I mean? So the payout's going to be flat. And I had to give you a player's package, you know, so where do you think the money's coming from? You know, I mean, I'm, if you just run the math, I'm in, on a regular event. I run the exclusive where I had negative $25 a player just out of the gate, you know? Yep. And so I don't, I don't understand, I don't understand what people are expecting, you know? And I think that this idea of cramming stuff down people's throat, they don't want is our whole mission. Serious. Why do you think, we have 13, we have 13 brands to choose from. That's the whole point. Yes. No, no. Okay. Yeah. So kudos to you. When I first heard it, I said, that's excellent. People can choose what they want. But here, and I'm just going to be honest, unless you're a kid, and hey, wearing my kid's disc golf hat, I can speak on this. Unless you're a kid that you get excited just to get something, like that's cool. They walk up to an event, they're excited to get something. Doesn't matter if it's a max weight boss or whatever it is, like they're just excited. I I can understand that. But at the same time, every time I go to an event, I'm literally given something. Now, this is why sponsors come in. This is a whole nother topic. I'm given something that I don't necessarily want. And- and the reality is I'm not playing it for that thing, but sponsors are saying, well, they can have this at a cheaper cost to get it in the hands of an amateur disc golfer. And that's obviously a huge marketing thing. And I get that side of it too. But like I said, I don't want that player pack. Now I've been playing 14 years. Do you know how much stuff I have that I don't need? It's just boxes. You and- realize that I got 500 plus t-shirts from tournaments <laughs> right now. We count <laughs> 500 plus tournament t-shirts in my house. Now, can I just say though, and, and okay, I, I like t-shirts too. I think, and I'm just looking, my brother, okay. He runs a lot. In fact, I think since like May, he's run like 450 miles or something. I'm talking like a lot of running and he loves to sign up for tournaments. He's ran a marathon recently. Guess what happens when he pays a hundred dollars to do like a 5k. And I'm talking like, I already know. I used to run five Ks. He gets a, he gets a t-shirt and, and maybe up, like a bracelet or something. Nice time. Here's a water bottle. Exactly. Yeah. And so can I go and I'm on my soapbox still here. <laughs> like I think let's lower the cost for an amateur to get in. And if you're TD out there right now, you're thinking, no, that's not, that's not possible because of the expectation for players packs. And I get that. We run the U S national championship for juniors. We get that. But if the expectation wasn't there for player packs to be so high, we could do more. In fact, here's the interesting part. If we were like, hey, you get a t-shirt and a towel and maybe a disc. And that was kind of like, wow, that's awesome. I value that t-shirt. It was an experience. I can take the extra money for that amateur event and make an amazing experience. I'm talking like above and beyond. But when you're taking a large portion of your payout 
or not your payout, large portion of your registration, and it goes towards the player pack. Here, here's my point. If you're an amateur and you're listening right now, do you value the player pack more than you do the experience? Because to me, but, but hold on, hold on, Matt, I don't mean to interrupt you, but so I've had some players emailing me recently, not understanding payouts and player pack tournaments because there's a trophy only and then there's the payout and there's the in-between, right? We do the in-between, but think about it. If you go trophy only, then people get upset mm -hmm. and they get the player package and, but everybody in the tournament leaves with something, right? If you do the payout only, you're paying 50% of the field and then the 50% of the field isn't getting anything. Well, that 50% of the field is going to go away. Yep. So now only, only 50% of 50% is going to get something. So the payout's going to be the same as if you did the player package anyway. Right. So a lot of these people only are signing up because they think they're going to get something. But then the guy who's serious about it says, Hey, I put 50 bucks into the pool. I won. There was 30 guys. How come I didn't win like 800 bucks? Right. You know? And so there's this in between median. And I think that it's because we're not used to money going to the people who are doing everything. Does that make sense? Yeah. The people that are doing everything, Everything deserved the money. Okay. Plain and simple. And that was my you hot know. take. Yes. So thank you for saying that. We're going to save that. We're going to cut that sound bite out and we're going to play it as my ringtone. Like tournament directors, Nick, have you ever TD'd or helped TD event? Nope. Okay. Dave has, I'm sure, hundreds, if not thousands. <laughs> um, I have done my fair share. I've ran a few. Yeah. I've done my fair share over the last five years. And I can tell you what, you do it for the love of the sport, not for the money. But as the sport grows, you can't continually ask those people. Now, there's certain people who they'll just do it forever, like without anything. And maybe those are the people who should continue to run tournaments. But to grow the sport, you need more help. We need to take it to the next level. And I feel like, and, and I don't know, is this public knowledge? Like, do you pay TDs that run events for you, Dave? Yeah, we're the only tour who actually pays them and we make it public because we want them to know that it's not a free service. You know, and what I've seen is half the reason these people got in issues with pros in general is because they are volunteering. And when someone complains a little bit to a volunteer, he wants to cry yep. and he has the right to. And we've been running our sport on the back of volunteers for many years. And it's it's just like you don't understand all of the national tours. What I played in them, they all have different TDs now. Than when you today, yeah, yeah. They, so, saying the national tour six years ago had different TDs than potentially the ones that the same national tour event has a different TD now, yeah, because you can't keep burning them out, you yeah. can't keep burning them out. And and I think that we have to pay them. And I think that it's the fact that the pros were playing for lunch money mm -hmm. that they were worried about it. But if we got away from the lunch money and you say the people are getting sponsors and there's real money in it now, that entry fee should actually go to the club, and the club can decide how much to pay the TD. Every club could be different. Mm -hmm. But that's what happens at the running event your brother goes to because they leave the club in a better position than when they were there before they came. And we leave the club in a worse position than when we came. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What about privatizing disc golf? Now we're going to get on a whole – I got to write that down. It's a good topic, <laughs> privatizing. Because why don't I run a disc golf tournament that I run separate from the PDGA? Now I haven't done this, but just throwing it out there as an idea. What if I ran a tournament as a business mind? What are the things that I'm going to focus on? I'm going to focus on the experience above all. I'm going to focus on their tournament experience and it's going to be so high. Right. It's going to be so high that they can't believe it. Like, wow. Like this is, I was treated like, like you said, Japan open. Like I was treated such a high level. I don't care what I got as a player pack over there. Like 
getting a t-shirt, something for me to remember that event by is all I care about. Now, can I just say, and we'll, we'll kind of wrap up on the player pack talk and we'll see mm -hmm. if there's anything else in relation to like the amateur tournament experience. But like what happens is, and I saw a shout out to junior worlds at DD. Um, I was out there for their first rollout, I think two years ago, um, with my son and no joke. And I saw the comments coming in here. Junior worlds had the best player pack hands down for any amateur tournament ever. Like, I think it was like 120, 150 to sign up, but they got like 350, do you, do you want, they got like $350 worth of merchandise. Uh, come on now. Last year, just my last tournament, I gave out a $550 player. Pack. <laughs> so maybe you have it, yeah. but here's the problem, Dave. And you just, you said this earlier. The problem is it's a bat, not a battle. That might be the wrong word. But it's a contest back and forth about which tournament can do the biggest player pack because that's how people are evaluating is your tournament good or not. And I think it's detrimental. And I'll say it again. It's detrimental to disc golf because, and I'll just say it from my perspective, running U.S. juniors, we look at junior worlds and go, they gave out $350 or $400 player pack for a $100 registration. If we only roll out $120 player pack for $120 registration, which is money back in prizes, they look at it and go, ho-hum, this was, this was a borderline poor player pack. And it's like... That's because PDJ should have a standard on what you can and can't do. <laughs> I mean, it's unfortunate, but that, we don't have standards. You know what I mean? Nobody can expect the same thing at two different tournaments, but they have the same PDGA. <laughs> do you ever... And I think that that is important. Did you, you ever know? watch um, the TV show The Office? Okay, Nick. Yeah, you? sure. Uh, no. A little bit. There was an episode, a Christmas season episode where Michael Scott was like doing like a Yankee swap or like a white elephant gift exchange. And he had said there was a standard, but then like he's the one who gives like away an iPod, which back then was like the gift of all <laughs> gifts. And it was like a $10 limit. But like he outdid everybody. And guess what everybody wants is that iPod. But they're all confused because they said, I thought there was a limit here. Yeah. Well, now everybody wants the iPod because that was what was given out. And I guess I'm trying to say, I personally am not going to judge a tournament on the player pack. I like. Yeah, it's hard work to raise this player pack. I wish it wasn't such yeah. a big deal. So anyways, I think people could reduce the entry fees. If they advertise an excellent player pack and that's their marketing strategy, well, then they better pr present it, right? Mm -hmm. But if if they're saying this tournament's going to be so awesome and people are like, what's in the player pack? And then they they don't come out because, oh, you're only giving away a disc. It's kind of like, yeah. So um, here's another topic. Do you care? And this is interesting because even as a pro, this is kind of bl blending in now. And and I'm I'm interested in both perspectives from you and Nick. Do you care what a tournament does with their money? As long as you had a good experience at the tournament, do you care what they did with their money? I personally don't care. And I think it's, it's, it's the public is a little over the top trying to get these TDs to show every penny they spend. It should be just like you said, did they meet the standards? Did they have a good payout? Did they, did they provide what they were supposed to provide and you had a good experience? If they made a hundred grand on the side, clap yeah. for them. You know, this is the problem I see. You know, the thing is, it's all like a secret. Oh, these guys aren't making money. If you think that the TDs on your area who run the tournaments aren't making money, then you're completely lost. They're making thousands of dollars for every one of those tournaments they're hosting in your area that has 80, 90, yep. 100 players. I mean, I'm, I don't have to be a mathematician to do that. And for you. I'm sure you know what wholesale and versus. I don't need to call out anybody either, but there are people. Can mm -hmm. I just say this now? I know there are tournaments out there making 50,000 plus. So, yeah. 
It's not a secret. I know. We know who they are. Yeah. Yeah. So it's kind of funny that, you know, this little guy runs a local C tier and they browbeat him because he, he kept $50 for his gas. But another guy who quietly does it by getting a sponsor for a disc and then saying he bought the disc on the report now just made $800 extra because that was sponsored. You know, I think that that is kind of interesting. I've seen a know, tournament director just literally now I'm sure there was other stuff going on in the disc golf community, but literally get railroaded because he couldn't account for all the money that was provided for the tournament. And I think to myself, if he advertised one thing and didn't present it, that's one thing. But if he presented everything that he said he was going to do in marketing and you don't know where the money went, that's not yours to worry about. And if you don't want to support the event, then don't do it again. But I guess my point is, and I'll just say it on a soapbox, TDs should make money. We should be applauding them when they make a lot of money. As long as you experienced a good tournament that was advertised, to me, that's all that matters. I'll let Nick cut in, but I got to say one thing, Nick, before you cut in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, is a guy named uh, Jub Jub. That's his nickname. And I used to go to this tournament all the time. And it came out after years that people started looking at his records. And he had a C-tier payout, paid me 300 to win every year. Whatever. It was only 50, 40 bucks to get in or something. But he was taking $3 a player for his admin services. And eventually they blackballed him out of his tournament that he ran for many years, took him away from the course, everything. He has no say over there anymore, right? And he's the one that kind of got it going. And I said to him, it's such a funny sport. If when they signed up and they came to check in and you said, listen, I'm taking $3, check this box. I'm going to give you a great experience today. Guarantee they check that box and say, oh, sure, Jub Jub, keep three bucks. You earned yeah. it. But for some reason... When they find out he took eighty-eight, you know, eighty-nine dollars for that three dollars a person, then he looks like some kind of thief, and it's it's kind of ridiculous. You know what I mean? I, it's just over the top. You know, like you said, that running thing—they're taking eighty. It's a hundred. They're keeping eighty a player. Yeah. Was it? Yeah. So, so go, ahead. go ahead. No, go ahead, Nick. It's your floor. I was. I was. You know, this kind of the subject is out of my kind of zone of knowledge because I've never TD'd an event, and. I kind of go to an event. I love the TDs around here. I've gotten along very well with some of the guys who run the damn series events here. Obviously, Steve Dodge, I've known him for years now, but I don't know exactly what goes into it. And so that's why it's really cool to hear you guys talk about it because there's just a lot of knowledge that I don't know. But I think getting back to Matt's question, do I care? What was it? Do I kind of care where the money goes? What, what was the exact yeah, question? Yeah. So, Nick, as long as the experience was what was advertised to you and you enjoyed it, do you care where the money goes? I care in the sense of I want that same, if not better experience the next year. Like if they're, you know, if I had a great experience, but the money that they're using from that tournament just completely shuts it down and that tournament never happens again. It's like, why, why do it like that? You know, if you have a good thing going, why stop it? You know, it's kind of like what I'm getting at, but I don't care the actual numbers percentage or anything. But like if, that. if the experience that you had, you enjoyed and the TD is financially wise, if you will, and he's yeah. making money off of it and he's planning for the next year already. And so he goes, I already planned next year and I'm able to take $20,000 out of it. Like there should be no reason to really care. No, that's kind of where I'm going. Um, I wouldn't care. And, and just for those who are going to roast me on YouTube or wherever here, like I, this is what I'm bringing to this, this show. Okay. I need to be devil's advocate. I also need to argue my points as if they are mine. And some of them are mine. But here's, the, here's what I want to say also. I've run an event or multiple events where I lose money on purpose because I wanted the experience to be so high and to be able to be what others expected. 
So like, I'm not against going out and doing that, but I guess that's why I'm speaking so passionately saying if we continue to have that standard for people, like there's only so long that I'll, I'll empty my pockets. Cause I have a good job that can pay for it. Um, yeah, come on. You were running, you stopped running mine. Cause you couldn't, you start, you lost money. running. <laughs> hey, I wasn't, I wasn't going to say it out loud and, it, but it's not because of what you required. It's because I literally wanted to have it at that high level. I was sending out no joke custom bag tags to every player weeks before the event happened saying thank you for registering with a personal letter in the mail i was providing snacks at for every round with i mean i'm talking like i wanted their experience to be so high and it cost money to do that but it was also partly because player packs are an expectation whereas if they could default and say i don't want a player pack then it allows you to do different things so i think that is it really interesting we talked a lot about it we didn't talk I mean, we did talk about amateur. We talked mainly about the bad. The good, if there's good, is it's getting people into the sport that feel comfortable entering at whatever division they want to enter at. Yep. And I mean, yeah, there's good to it for sure. But I just think that nobody expects it. The people who complain the most about the player packs are the people playing in their first tournament. Yes. Yeah. yeah. But I will actually, I'll actually give it to those. Well, I don't know. I don't know if I'll give it to the first time people to say that they have the right to do that. But how about this with, with all of these topics, like you run an amateur tour for the na nation. What is like, how are you coping with the demand for like astronomical, everything payouts and prizes? Like, how are you going to sustain yourself? Um, I'm, I, put 25 years in the sport of contacts and that's basically i'm using them up you know that's basically what you know i've been doing and contacting i just keep reaching outside for more sponsors and you know getting more deals and explaining how the exposure for amateurs is the future of the sport and doing all that we can as me and cynthia and the staff to try to basically get that to happen but you know yeah if you do the mathematics on our tour you, you see that we don't make money <laughs> I mean, but dave <laughs> And I'll speak out loud for you. That is a problem. And now that's your choice as a business owner. But I think yeah. it's, uh, but I also think that that's how it's been set up. Like you have been yeah, set up to yeah, where you I'm have to play that game. Yeah, I'm trying to do it the other way. And the only way you can is with numbers. So I'm trying to get more people to play so that there is an eventual profitability for a staff and to have a company that mm -hmm. we can do it. And that's why the PDJ is maintained so well because they have so many members. I mean, when the PDJ only had a couple thousand members, it was right out of a guy's garage in another country. Yeah. You know what I mean? So there's a big difference. It's all about numbers. And the way they've set it up, it's a numbers game. That's why the tournaments that you mentioned that made the big money, we won't call them out. Those are the tournaments that have eight, 900, 1100 players at them. So they can afford to give out that big package and make a couple dollars a player. But when you multiply it out, it ends up being $50,000, right? And so I think that, that that's really the only way you can make it happen. And so we're just trying to keep growing and saying, if we give you the good experience, we can take that dollar or two for ourselves and hopefully enough of you will play that we can afford to pay a staff. Do you yeah. think that I could, and I already said this, uh, like a private, privately run thing, and we can kind of wrap this topic up and move on to tournament jitters. But do you think if I ran a private thing, or you did, and didn't you try this? Go back to the history of the next gen tour. Like, hey, I'm not going to do this with the PDJ because if I do my own rules or my own standard, like I'm going to be able to run this better. Now, what happened is the voice of the people in the wanting the PDJ is my understanding, but maybe you can correct me. Yeah, the PDGA wanted us to join forces with them. They didn't like the idea of us having a tour that wasn't sanctioned. 
And, you know, especially me being such a PDJ prominent personality mm -hmm. sends the wrong message. And then the other part of it was people, you, are you, you know, I, why do you think Chuck, we won't say what Chuck Kennedy got, but we'll know that Chuck Kennedy got taken care of. And what do you think people play for now? They don't play for that player's package. They pulled the, they pulled the membership. 80% said they play for one reason and one reason only. Okay. What is it? I don't know. What I'm is assuming it? assuming it's got to be the money. It's a, the rating. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They play I, for a rating. I don't know if I want to say this out loud, but that's why I register. <laughs> yeah. It's part of the 80%. So, right. So – if, you know, you're providing a rating and that's all people really care about. So our tournament didn't have a rating. We tried to use the infinite rating system, but it, people didn't respect it because they respect the PDGA rating. So without a rating, people didn't really care about the tournaments and there was no history of it kept. You know, our yeah. website had it, but there's no archive. Yep. And I think that that's an important. So offering the archive and the rating and that's why Chuck was taken care of so well, because people said overwhelmingly why they joined the PDGA, why they play PDGA events when they're not a pro is to maintain a rating and know what their skill level is so they can compare to the others. Gotcha. That's actually a topic that we're going to be talking about within the next few weeks is PDGA ratings. Do and they matter? Yeah, do they matter? I was I was on the ratings committee. So. Oh, well, we might yeah. have to have you back like on. Say, you're going to have to make a little segment <laughs> on it with us. But it, like, I, I've talked to higher level pros and they're like, I, I don't care about my rating. Like some, sometimes the only people that I, like for Paul and Paige – when their rating goes up, they're setting a new record in their respective areas. Like Paul's rating, he can only beat it himself right now, and then it's an all time it's an all time high again, <laughs> which potentially is huge for him because then Discraft can come out with another disc or do something to celebrate 61. what he did. And same thing with Paige Pierce, the highest rated female ever. You know, that's when ratings do matter. But for me, I know my skill level as a disc golfer. And there are times where I can compete really well. And then there are times, times where I compete really bad. I don't need a number to show me that I can do that. I, I know I can do that. Like if I go to answer an event, me this, Nick, answer me this, Nick, at the 24 MVP open that you got your sweater at, yeah. when you were done with your round. Tell me, tell me you didn't check out the rating. I, I probably, yeah, no, I probably did. I, 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 yeah, I <laughs> believe me. I, because there is ratings. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to check my rating. I still do it now, like after my round. Like you said, if they don't have it up by lunchtime, I'm kind of pissed because I don't want to be going through my round and be like, all right, what did I shoot first round? But oh, like this is a whole nother topic because there's like yeah. regional ratings and I see people commenting about their states. But Dave, I got to say thank you. I'm over here almost <laughs> laughing. You got Nick almost worked up. That was no, amazing. No, no, no. That was amazing. Yeah. But, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. yeah, there's definitely like because there is a rating system. Yeah, we're going to check that. But if there wasn't <laughs> yeah. a rating system, would I be mad about it? No, I would hope not because I know who I am and how good I am as a player. But I don't know. Like everyone's going to comment that ratings in each state are going to be different. But like I've said, that's, that's another, a whole nother subject. Yeah. That's a whole nother topic. We'll have you back on for that I can explain that, but well, that's another day. I can explain that mathematically for me. Exactly, because I have no idea the mathematics. I've, I've talked to so many people about it, is like the mathematics on the ratings and how do they make sense in some areas and how they don't. When we do do that subject, Matt and I are going to have to reach back out to you because if you actually... At least let me send you an email because it's all folklore. There's a mathematical <laughs> equation and there's perfect reason for why everything the way Wait, it is. we shouldn't have Chuck Kennedy on? You should have Chuck Kennedy on. Okay. That'd be interesting when we have that topic, gotcha. maybe. All right. So, I Nick, yeah. do you think we've kind of, I mean, we haven't talked about everything, amateur tournaments, and obviously we talked about the difference, and I just went on a rant or two. But, again, 
what makes a good experience? Should, should it be privatized? Is it is the player packs out of control? Should TDs be compensated? Um, what what are the good experiences? I think meals. Okay, yep. <laughs> that's meals good. Are, yeah, meals. And are I huge. feel like that's cheap. I, I've done that. You can get hamburgers or whatever. I mean, that's fairly cheap to put that in as opposed to a player pack. I'd take that every time. Um, and then trophies are cool. And I know top pro events, you're getting a trophy too, but like trophies are cool. Like, Hey, again, I would forgo, and they say there's trophy only events. Um, but I'd forgo the player pack for a trophy. So Nick, you want to get us on to our second topic? I do. I just want to say really quick. I think Dave probably said one of the best things about it is for the experience of it. You want to keep people where you're at. I can't remember those am side events that I did play at Maple Hill. One of the best things about it was one, we got to go up to the sap house play all the games that are up there Tuesday, uh, Steve had us this huge Italian dinner every single time after the first round, everyone went back to Maple Hill. No one left until nine o'clock that night. It was awesome. But going into our next subject for the night, Dave will be an expert on this as well. Is that tournament jitters? People get the jitters playing disc golf, especially when you're competing for a livelihood in the sport, or even like for me, it's a weekend thing. You know, I love competing, but I still get jitters when I'm doing well at a local pro event. It's just, I feel like if you don't have jitters in disc golf, it's not something that you should be, it's weird, not something that you should not be striving for, but like something that you don't take as serious as I think a lot of other people would, but kind of want to talk about managing our nerves and having a strong mental game. Two of, I think the hardest things in disc golf is a mental game and controlling your jitters. So can I set this up? I just played a, a flex league at Maple Hill and I won't say his name, but a buddy of mine that plays disc golf steps up to his first putt and he's like, he's probably like 15 feet away. And he's like, I don't know. He's upper 900 rated. And he's like, man, I haven't competed in months because of all COVID. And he's like, he hit his putt, but he's like, why did I take like a minute to do that putt? He's like, I was so like, I had these nerves. My heart was beating and all of that. And I'm like, I get it, but I've been playing disc golf a little bit off and on throughout this because I have a home course and like, it wasn't as big of a deal to me, but I think, is that part of it, Dave? What's, what's creating this heartbeat and this sweat in people when they step up to their drives or their it's putts? It's called performance anxiety, which is what is caused by that. If you don't have it, then you shouldn't be there. It's a waste of your time. You're just playing for a hobby. If you're yeah. competing and you, and you don't feel it, you shouldn't have signed up. It means you're not into it. Yeah. You don't care about the result. Performance anxiety is a direct result of you caring about how you're going to do. Hold and on. You care about that. Which I want you, you to, to continue on. I want you to continue on. But have you ever experienced a tournament where you didn't have that performance anxiety? Yeah, and I did poorly. Interesting. I was the, I was the TD and I didn't care about my performance because I ran out to the hole and I finished ninth at a B tier. Nick, have you ever not had this quote unquote performance anxiety? No, I, th I think I've always felt anxiety playing an event. And I can remember my first event. I thought my heart was going to literally beat out of my chest. I can remember the very first tournament at Buffumville disc golf course in Charlton, Massachusetts. I stood on the tee pad before two minute warning. And I'll tell you what, as someone who's new to an event and you hear everybody yell two minutes out in the wild. You're like, what is about to happen? My heart was just beating. I said, that's mostly when it sets in <laughs> is that two minute call. You're done putting, you know, right before you're around, you're done putting at that point. And so now you're kind of like waiting for that start sound. And especially if you're the first one out of your group to tee off. Yeah. Your heart's going to be racing. And then no you doubt. step up to the tee pad and then you hit and the you, first tree. No, I'm just well, yeah, because you, your mechanics flew out the window. Yep. 
you literally either black out like you're not thinking and you just you just well, play nothing how you practiced it. Well, what they say, Matt, is that that's what separates, uh, again, an amateur from a professional athlete in all sports is how you handle performance anxiety. Mm -hmm. You're going to have it. What you can do to lower it is preparation, knowing that you know exactly what you're going to do before you get there. You have it. You're not making any decisions on the course at separate conditions. So that can lower your anxiety. But in general, you're not going to get away from it. And what separates an amateur from a professional is what you do with that energy because it's good energy. And I'm going to bring up an East Coast legend named Joe Mela, the technician mm -hmm. is his name. And he was one of the greats, and he had more energy playing than any player I had ever seen. And many times when my young career, I would have that anxiety, and I didn't know how to deal with it. And I would throw that first shot into the first three, throw OB on the first three holes, and I'd be six over, and then settle in, shoot amazing the rest of the way, and be in 20th. Right? And I, I was kind of depressed about it because I knew I had the skill, but I couldn't score. And Joe Mela came up to me one day and he said, man, you know what separates the men from the boys? That's how he said it. Mm -hmm. I said, what? He said, you, that energy you feel inside, it's in your gut. Can you feel it? It's warm. And I was like, yeah. He's like, turn that into performance acceleration and use it as adrenaline and tap into it. And you'll perform at your best, not your worst. Use it to get yourself pumped up, not pumped down. And I did that and it worked for me in that round. And then I started doing that my whole career. And it takes like, I know it sounds weird, but it takes almost like looking in the mirror before the round at a, in a bathroom and saying, you ready? Talking to yourself and being like, let's go. We're here to do it. Let's go. And like, like a fighter, because if you let it eat you up, it will. But if you take it out on the course, you'll have your best round. Man, yeah. that is gold. And I say, I, I am taking like this. I hope everyone appreciates this because this is like a legitimate, I'm taking notes right now when I'm looking away from like when I'm looking away from Dave as we're speaking, because I'm a big fan of eye contact, but like this is something because if you statistic statistically look at the pro tour events that I've played, any big events, my worst hole of the tournament is hole number one. I am probably 1000 over par on hole number ones at any event, but then the rest of my round, I settle into those nerves and then that's when it does turn into that positive energy like you're talking about is actually being able to talk to yourself and i'll say this the year that i won that amside event i've always wanted to win it i was pumped up i was sitting there on the t-pad like okay i finally feel like this is the year i can win it sarah hokum was calling off the names for the tea times and right before i went to throw i asked her i said give me a quick tip quick 30 second tip how can i win this tournament and she said before every single one of your shots take a deep breath learn to control your breathing and I remember playing four great rounds, probably four of my best rounds back then in disc golf. And that really helped. And Matt, Matt has a bunch of, you know, things right now that actually from a golfer's perspective, tips to calming your nerves and everything like that, that I think Dave will highlight as we're saying it. But Matt really quick, I think wants to talk about a couple of them. <laughs> I'm going back to golf and anyone who's going to know me now thinks I'm obsessed with golf because this is week number five that I'm bringing golf up again. But there are correlations. And Dave, what you shared you must be a professional because, and you, or you must've been around for a while because I researched I this when I had the topic come up, I researched it the, the best I could. And what you're saying is like a million percent on the people who are competing in the Olympics, this performance anxiety or performance pressure, whatever it is, like they experience that they have figured out, as you said, 
how to harness that and turn it from uh, nerves to excitement, exactly as you just said. So that is something that I'd be interested. Do you have to sit down with like a guru or somebody to like talk through these things to like, hey, teach me how to transform that? Because that is something that would go a long way. Um, so here's, here's a few quick tips for everybody. Apparently, chewing gum. Now, don't leave it on the tea pad <laughs> but chew, or on the park benches, but chewing gum, apparently there's a study out there that showed that it relieves stress in you. And they, they evaluated these people before, during, and after chewing gum. And they, they experienced that it was a stress reliever. Um, so you know go ahead. Do you know why? Well, I'm assuming it's because when you're eating, this is, okay, I, I have inside scoop for my reasoning. When you're eating your body does not feel like it's threatened or in danger, which is where your anxiety comes from. The, the idea of like fight or flight, right? And so your nerves are saying, hey, something bad is about to happen here and I need to run away. And so if you're eating, your body automatically assumes or if you're chewing that chewing motion, hey, you're, you're fine. That's, that's what I found. What, what do you got? That's a good point. But I'd have to say it's because when you get nervous, what happens to your mouth? Mm. You're you, talking about you like get- dry or? You chewy. The more nervous your jaw starts to shake, you start to get that. So yep. if you're chewing it and the tension is then released, then it releases that nervous feeling. That would be my guess. I'm not saying I know, but that no. would be my guess. And, I, and, I feel like we're about to see a lot more people hopefully start chewing gum. <laughs> <laughs> we got to come up with like they have the big league chew. Yeah. We should come up with like the pro tour chew. We should have just spring. Not, not to interrupt you, but number one thing the pros used to say on tour, don't eat before you play. Mm. Play really? hungry because the fight or flight that he just mentioned. Hmm. Interesting. And so, yeah, that's a whole nother topic, but so take deep breaths. Nick said that taking deep breaths, I think is really important because again, and I'll just put it out there for the world to know. I do have a therapist that I talk to regularly. It's awesome. And one of the things that she talked to me about was when you take these deep breaths, it goes right back to what I said about chewing gum. If you take deep breaths, um, your body, and I'm talking deep, like breathe in, Hold it for like five seconds, three seconds, and then breathe out real slow and do that for a couple times. Again, your body, your physiological effect of that fight or flight, that that's what anxiety is in you, the nerves that you're feeling all these jitters. It takes it away because it goes, you can't actually be threatened because you're so calm and breathing slow. And so it it starts to tell your brain, no, you're wrong. And so that's where Nick said, and this is with Sarah Holcomb's point to him, if you can do these slow, deep breaths before your body is going to be able to come to a different place. Uh, How about this one? Have you ever used this, Dave? Visualize success. Visualize literally, (laughs) take a moment to visualize yourself succeeding and doing it exactly the right way. Is that work for you? You're going to think I'm cocky or whatever, but this is where I'm saying people misread it. You can't really speak your mind when you're at the top without (laughs) people thinking you're egotistical to the confident. But let me tell you, that the secret, that Oprah stuff that she put out, I kind of tapped into that when I was reading the golf books back then. And that visualization of you winning is as real as it ever gets. And I'll tell you, I used to be on the airplane. I won't say with who, but I would be flying out to a tournament. And then because of that book, I wrote my speech, my winning speech. (laughs) Right. And I'd say it out loud to the people I'm with and they'd be like, shut up, whatever. And all week leading up to it and all week during practice, I'm like, I'm here to win. You know, I'm going to win. I'm here to win. I'm going to win the tournament. I'm supposed to win. So a lot of people are like, he's so cocky. He's so cocky. Right. But that's what it told me to mentally believe. And once that was, it was my destiny. I believed I was supposed to win. And somehow half the time players would just miss a 20 foot on the last hole and I'd win. You know, it was just the weirdest things. I was supposed to win. Yeah. And I, once I believed that, 
I started to win. And then I would show them on the airplane afterwards. Look, remember when I wrote this speech on the way here, <laughs> you know, and yeah. they'd be like, that's stupid. It doesn't make sense. And I'm like, no, it does. You control your own destiny. It's your reality and you control it. There was a local disc golfer to me here. And I'm just elaborating on what you said, because I think it's so important that I remember playing leagues. I don't know, six, seven years ago. And I was like, how are you not missing your putts? You're literally not missing any putts. And it was started like, I was happy for him, but it was driving me crazy because I was competing against him. And he literally told me, and I felt like it was cocky. Just like you said, he goes, literally, I know I'm not going to miss the putt. Like, I know it. I'm, I'm going to hit the putt. It's not even a question. And I felt like it was the cockiest thing ever, but he just kept doing it and kept doing it. And I think there's something to this. Well, Hey, one thing I want to say, you talked about the, all in the beginning, things that upset people. There's an example. If you believe in that visual thing, the person who, when he does miss a putt, he's not going to say if he's a good visualizer and knows how to be a winner, he's not going to say, Oh, I missed it. God, I was off. He's going to say, man, that, it slipped out of my hand. My footing was off. My putter didn't feel right. Yeah. The squirrel behind me jumped. So people would think he's complaining, but he's telling himself, no, you didn't make any mistakes. Mm -hmm. You can still make it. So when he goes to the next hole, he doesn't adjust. He just does what he was doing on the first seven holes, not the eighth hole and makes it again. You're right. The guy who says it's his, the guy who says it's his fault. He's done the rest of the round. He can't find his putt anymore. Right. But <laughs> the guy who acts like that's considered cocky, but he's actually doing what is needed to get the best out of his own performance. Gotcha. That does. Okay. So yeah. that's perfect. And I'm going to, I, your perspective was amazing there because I'm not going to lie. It bothers me to no end when somebody makes an excuse for a poor throw, like, Oh, if this or that, or I didn't slip here, or that kid didn't say something over there. Or, like it bothers me. Cause I'm like, no dude, you just didn't throw it right. Mm -hmm. But to your point, that's, that's, I guess there's a competition mindset there too, to be like, Hey, I need to remind myself that I can do this the right way. And that wasn't my fault. It, that's an interesting perspective. Um, so visualizing it for sure. I think that is a takeaway. Nick, do you have any final thoughts on like tips? I mean, we talked about the tips, but like, like, what do you do when you step up to a putt? That's a big putt. Like, how do you clear your brain? How do you get rid of those nerves? Do you focus on that? Do you, can you trick yourself? What do you do? I guess. Well, so I heard Nate Sexton say this a long time ago when he has done his putting practice at his house, his final putt, he always thinks, okay, this is the putt to win the world championships. Hmm. And you kind of add that pressure onto yourself. And there are times where like, for me, I don't say the world championships because I've only competed in one of them and I'm not obviously going to win them right now. I think of them. No, as, no, stop. Yeah. Don't have that mindset. Thing. Don't have that mindset. No. So, so for my local tournament, <laughs> no, he did have the mindset. He said, not right now. Okay. Yeah. Say, not All right. Good. I'll give him that. <laughs> you picked up on it. Thank you. Um, <laughs> so for, for me, I was talking about, you know, like last year we played the Stidham Memorial. It's at one of my home courses at Buffenville. So when I did my putting practice every single day before that event, it was okay. And this is the final putt to win the David Stidham Memorial. Now flash for, um, Fast forward to the tournament itself, I was on the final hole. I had a 35-foot putt, slightly uphill, and I literally said to myself, I was on the chase card, had no idea how the lead card was doing. All I knew is I was playing a very good round, and I said, okay, this is the putt to win the David Sitter Memorial. And I, I knew that pressure, and so it was almost in the sense it was the same pressure that I gave myself at my house. I nailed the putt. We went back to Tournament Central, and then all of a sudden, the lead card blew up that day. I played... I played very well and I won that tournament. And I think that was from Of course they blew up. It was Buffinville Bay. That place is windy. What's yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. It was windy. It was raining. And I played 
I took one four the second round. You know, it was it was a great round. Don't get me. It was ten thirty six rated, but I had that pressure of okay, this putt is to win the tournament. This putt is to win the tournament, dude. I just had an epiphany and it was based off of what you were saying and what Dave said. Like, I have to share it because I don't, maybe it doesn't make sense, but this is an amazing topic that I think everyone's going to benefit from. And I was thinking to myself, as you're saying this, which players play best under pressure? And I was just starting to think. And of course, Paul Macbeth comes to mind and some others. But I was like, are they just really good at playing under pressure? How are they managing their nerves? But then I thought to myself, the more people that are watching them and the more pressure you would think, the more nerves. Like, that's what I'm thinking for myself. But as you just talked about, Dave, and as I alluded to on the whole visualizing success and taking your nerves and making an excitement, that's what's happening there. It's almost like they have the ability to perform higher because they have more pressure on them. The that's what the whole feature card's about. People complain about. Yeah. That's why everybody complains top level because they don't get that same feeling in the first round that they're getting for no no particular reason. you're right you know I, I don't even get up anymore if it's not a major or big tournament that's why you don't see me signed up i have no interest in playing a regional a tier really unless it's for fun mm -hmm. i i, I want to go to a tournament where i know it means something and there's going to be people watching and there's going to be a camera then i get pumped up and i can show up and i yes. can play my best yeah. but that is an i go to a tournament with no 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 camera now i don't even try it's like oh yeah whatever it's just hitting yeah. me for the first time, though. I, I guess I understood the feature card. Like, I'd always say, okay, I get it. They have cameras on them. I'm sure there's a little bit something different. But, like, it's hitting me for the first time that the nerves, the more nerves and the more stress and the more pressure actually can translate into more of what we are saying, turn it to excitement, and it allows them to perform at such a higher level than, than somebody who doesn't. So that is an incredible thought process there. I don't know. I bet you could if someone did the stats. Featured card versus final card, lead card, there's always at least one person on both interesting yeah there could be a lot more that goes into that than just the obviously the the excitement the nerves there's always one there's always a squeaky wheel <laughs> but so there's one guy who takes all the heat for everybody and he has a bad round then the other three guys usually feed off each other yep and i played in a round where i shot 11 20 paul mcbeth shot 11 15 the other guy shot 11 01 and then the other guy you know didn't do so well oh jeez. you know but the takeaway <laughs> you know, here and this is the big takeaway for me if i'm taking notes nick's taking notes i hope everybody's taking notes thank you for being on the show dave is that literally work on and this is a big takeaway the work on turning your nerves to excitement because that's what the olympic athletes are doing that's what the top pros are doing and if you can figure out a way to make yourself more nervous so you can translate that to excitement that's that's a good thing and i hear people talk about it being good but i never was able to put it into this perspective so thank you very much for sharing that do you have any last thoughts on this whole idea of your mental game anybody nick dave yeah no i mean the only thing i would say is i think people put too much into it overall mm. and your, your ability speaks for itself. And like I said, preparation. I think that anytime you get to a hole and you're making a decision on what you're going to do, you've put yourself at twice the anxiety level. And now you've put it the negative. And that's why you see when people get at that level, you see them start sweating. Mm -hmm. You'll see players look really hot and flustered <laughs> and that anxiety is kicking in because they're trying to make a decision. And it's like when you watch Ricky win, you know, I always picture him he would just run up to the tee and throw a shot before the camera could even turn on. <laughs> Same with Cam Todd, Ron Russell, yeah. and those guys. It's because they knew what they were going to throw on that hole a week ago. Mm -hmm. Right? And I think that that takes away some of the anxiety, and the faster they do it, that it doesn't build up. If you sit there for a minute at the tee pad thinking, it's like starting to build on you, and then after that, it's, you know, you got to be really special to pull through. Yeah, exactly. I've You definitely mm -hmm. notice that people who really take their time compared to people who play pretty quickly like i think 
Same thing. When I'm playing a tournament, I think I pretty much know exactly what I'm going to throw on that tee pad. The only thing that changes is if there's wind or rain, but there's slight adjustments that I have to make in that situation. Now, obviously, your upshots are going to be completely different because you don't know where your disc you can't foresee where your disc is going to land, but usually when I get up to a tee pad, if it's a calm day, I've got the disc in my hand that I throw almost every single time on that hole. I get my shoulder warmed up, and then I go ahead and throw. And a lot of people will say, oh, yeah, you play pretty quick. I'm like, I know what I'm going to do on that shot. It's the same shot. I play, well, I play Maple Golds almost every day. So, I'll give you the last thing you didn't talk about, Matt. I'm surprised you didn't get it, which is maintaining your mental game throughout the whole thing. Oh, Sorry. I'm back. Sorry. No, you're good. It was someone tried to call me. Maintaining your your game throughout the whole thing is tough. Climo used to whip me, and one of the times he whipped me on my birthday, I was winning the whole tournament. He whipped me in the final round. I'm sitting there in second place at a bench. I think like someone's taking my toy away from me. It's like 2002, and I'm just looking like I want to go home, and I want to leave the tour. And Climo walks over to me, and I was staying with him, and he goes, "You ready to go?" I'm like, "Sure, champ." He's like, "What's the matter? You got second place, you know." Because he won, you know, and I'm like, dude, I'm tired. I don't know if I can do this anymore. I think I want to go back to college, you know. And he said, "What's the matter?" He goes, "The problem is, is that you're burning yourself out." And I go, "What do you mean?" He goes, "Well, you concentrated for four hours. I concentrated for about nine, ten minutes." I and I said, "I swear, I've heard you talk about this before. Now it's all coming back, but I've heard you talk about this." Yeah, this is all mental. And so he said, "You spend the whole hole." worrying about your upshot, your putt, the angle, and you're like walking up and down the fairway and you can think about it. You're stressed and you're pacing. You're trying to get to your lie quicker. He goes, I sit back, wait till it's my turn. I think about the hockey game last night. I think about what my wife's going to make for dinner. I make conversation about the local guys. And when it's my turn, I turn on my brain for 30 seconds and I make a great shot. And so I'm fresh for every hole. He goes, by the time we got to the 17th hole, I knew I was going to beat you. You look beat. Yeah. And I knew I would win. Man. And I was like, Dang, champ. And that's kind of changed my perspective at that time. Yeah. Man. So just in conclusion, I played Am Worlds in 2011. And this is just to contrast the whole, like, take the nerves and turn it to excitement. Like, I played, uh, I don't remember how many rounds it was back then, five, six rounds. And my favorite round, and I actually played the hot round on that course or tied the hot round on that course in 2011 Am Worlds. It was because, in my mind, I translated it to the card I was playing with was the most relaxed, happy-go-lucky card I've ever had, just laughing and having a good time and like, oh, risk feeding off of each other's excitement. And it was like I had zero nerves because I didn't feel like there was anything on the line and I was just able to play and have fun with friends that I hadn't met before. But that's So anyways, there's a lot of takeaways here for how to do that. I think we just got some great nuggets in here. We have people saying that they appreciate your insight. Um, We're definitely going to have to have you back on again in the future here. Um, oh, yeah. but without further ado, people sit around sometimes and, uh, want to play this game. And if you're watching live, play it. If you're watching post, play it. If you're listening on the podcast, play along, Dave, we're going to switch it up right now and, uh, put it up here. We'll explain the rules to you in just one second. Here we go. Judge that disc golfer, the game show where you judge a disc golfer you've never met. Let's go ahead and start this up here. So, Nick, you may recognize him. I golf. This is, what's your name? Kevin Coltrane. Kevin Coltrane. So, this is a game called Judge That Disc Golfer. We're going to analyze your introduction to us, and then we're going to try to make some guesses about you. We're going to try to judge you. Okay, here we go. So, question number one is just get to know you. Uh, How long have you been playing disc golf? Um, I first played disc golf in... 
I've been playing competitively for about eight years. I first played disc golf in like the seventh grade. So I guess I first played disc golf like 16 years ago. Okay, so 16 years and you've been playing competitively? Since 2012. Okay, so eight years. Um, do you have a PDGA number? 53341. And do you have a rating? 1,004, last I checked. 1,004. So you're the highest rated golfer that we've interviewed. So let's All ask, right. based off of that understanding. Suck how, on that, Casey. Yeah. <laughs> how far can you throw a disc? Okay, so Dave, this is the game. Um, yeah. Let me go ahead and switch it up here. Um, so the way it works is we pick a random disc golfer that nobody knows. Now, I will full disclosure, I know this individual and Nick knows this individual, but yeah. he does not know the answers that are going to be given in this situation. Um, you know very much about what he just told you. He gave a good insight there. I do think it's going to lean a little bit in Nick's favor here, but not necessarily. I feel like these questions are kind of up for grabs. So with that being said, we're going to let Nick answer this. He says, how far can he throw a disc? And he gives an answer. He has a thousand five rating. He's been playing a long time. Nick, what do you think he's going to answer? Uh, let's say 500 feet. Okay. It's the closest, Dave. The closest to the answer is going to be the winner. Um, I'll put him back up there on screen. You can kind of see him a little bit there. But uh, what do you think? I, I, already got, I think the answer is the guy seems very um, reserved. And so I don't think he's going to say 500 on your thing unless he says it and laughs. So I'm going to say... 440. Okay, 440. All right, here we go. Let's see what he answers. All right, we're going to get this rolling here. There's a lot of variables into distance. If I was to throw a flat ground, perfect drive with a little bit of tailwind, I could probably hit between 485 and 500. Wow, okay. Now let's see if you guys guessed that. We've been having... <laughs> Okay, so this this is kind of home field. This is the most advantage that I've had. This is actually the first disc golfer on Judge That Disc Golf that I know, and I know Kevin very well. Um, I'll kind of give you a quick tip, Dave. Kevin did the best that I think anyone in New England has ever done at the MVP Open last year. He placed just out of the top 20, I'm pretty sure. Okay. So he said ten. T tailwind's 10%, so without that tailwind, he's throwing 440 on the nose. Exactly. Um, 48 he, feet minus 485 is 437. He, he, it was, I was yeah, just going to say, you both so. you both were very close. So long story short, we're going to give that one to Nick. And it, but but we're going to go ahead and get the next question going here, and let's see what we asked him. Some really, really honest people say they throw very short. He's being honest as he can be, and it sounds pretty long. Um, let's ask this question. Did you keep track of your score this round? Yes. Okay, what layout did you play? We played Old Glory. Okay, so not that Old Glory is going to determine this. Well, actually, yes, it will, Nick. Think about this. How many birdies did you get? I'd need to check. I have okay, go ahead. Okay, so he pulls out his what, phone. Old Glory, all of the a mixture of all. Yes, but old, you get, old Glory is the red, white, blue. So the red layout being the shortest, yeah, played, the white I layouts. What's that? I played a lead red, blue. I played the old Glory. Oh, okay, yeah, ones. yep, yeah. It's a red, white, blue. Yeah. All right, Dave. So you're going to be up now. This was my point. Nick doesn't have any insider information here. It's purely speculation. His, he didn't look like he had a good day, but he is thousand five rated. It is Old Glory. I'm going to go with eight. 
eight okay. eight under par. Okay. Nick, well, that, that doesn't eight, mean eight under par. Birdies. Eight birdies. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yes, eight yep. birdies. Okay, yep. right, correct. Yes. Okay, go ahead, Nick. Uh, we'll go. I don't know. Dave's thinking you didn't have a great day. We're gonna go six. Okay, eight and six. Let's see what he answers. Here we go. Uh, one, two, six. Six birdies. Whoa, six birdies. Hey, okay. This um, is the best I've done so far, Dave. <laughs> All right. How many discs do you have in your bag? Like molds or just frisbees? disc quantity? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So how many discs does he have in his bag? Now, you can kind of see the bag a little bit. You can kind of guess what bag he has. But the idea is how many discs does he have in his bag? So that last point goes to Nick. So that's two now for Nick. That's not very unusual. Now, I've, I've lost virtually Every week, but one so far in the show. <laughs> I had to sway it his way. Yeah. All right, Nick, what 21. do you think? Uh, well, I know Kevin, so I'm going to go with 14. Okay. Nick guesses 14 discs. What do you say, Dave? 17. 17. 17. So he just, you just played a nice game there because if you get over 17, you win. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's see what he says. Um, I'm going to get this started. Here we go. <laughs> A dozen? No, more. Three, six, nine, twelve, oh, fifteen, yeah, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. Nineteen discs. Nineteen discs. Dang, okay, so picking it up. <laughs> no skunk, Nick. No skunk. No. <laughs> no skunk. Okay, let's continue no on here. That point goes to Dave, so now we have two to one. Let's continue on. Okay. Um what is your or I should say it this way, let me start over. 20, 20 discs. One is on the ground. <laughs> oh, bonus. All right. If you guess 20, we're going to give it to you because he left one out of his bag. That's right. Um, do you have a favorite professional disc golfer? No. No. <laughs> okay. So if you had to choose one, who would you pick? Oh, that just cracks me up. I said, do you have a favorite pro? And he's like reserved it by himself. No. Okay. So I said, if you have to say you have a favorite pro, who would it be? So Dave, you're up. Who does this guy say if he had to choose, who is his favorite? I mean, I don't know the guy. I feel like he's going to pick a local player or Ricky, but the way he's dressed in the bag he's carrying, I'm going with Paul McBeth. Oh man, you gave three different ones. Yeah, you right. rolled the dice and went with probably Paul. best my answer though. Okay, he's wearing the Oakley. He's dressed. He's dressed like that. I'm going with the Paul. Well, so we we've played with Simon before a couple times, and so I know he loves to compete. Kevin's a really good competitor, and I know he loves to compete against Simon. So I'm gonna go with Simon. Okay, let's see um, what his answer is. Who is his favorite pro? Pro if he had to choose. Um, I guess Riggy's pretty cool. I like watching Kevin Jones play the most, I guess. I knew it was okay. Ricky. So, Kevin Jones, that would be my favorite player to watch. Yeah, that's okay, surprising. awesome. Uh, so Kev I, didn't, I didn't know he was a KJ USA fan. So you both got skunked on that one, um, but we made him choose. But to be fair, I almost give half a point to Felberg, but he went know, final right? answer, yeah. Paul, but he said Ricky's cool, but then yeah. he moved on. So I almost said Ricky because he said did that's the doubles round say, with Ricky. I said he was going to say Ricky was cool. That's all I said. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're right. It was kind of <laughs> true. So, all right, still two to one. Let's continue on. I think there are two more questions or six total. I think that there would be two questions left. Okay, here we go. Um, Good answer. Uh, how about we ask this? And I think... 
Nick's gonna have to make. He's his a wicked nice guy too. Just Kevin Jones is extremely props. yes. Kevin, extremely if you're watching, nice extremely nice guy. Um, how many aces do you have? Okay. How many aces does this guy have? Now, if Nick knows the exact number, that's not fair, but I can't imagine that he I would. Don't, I don't know the exact number. Um, so you're up, though, Nick. I'm going to go... It's so weird. Some people actually keep count of how many aces they have. <laughs> so it's like so hit or miss. Let's go uh, 13. That's right, about I've how never many kept I track of my aces either, but I'll go with 14. <laughs> so I get the under, he gets the over. I love this. This is a battle. I right think it's now. more like 50. I think it's more like 50. It's probably going to be something like 28 or something like that. But all right, know. here we go. Let's see what he answers. This will be to tie it up if Felber gets it. I'm going to go. 16. Oh. All right. What? That was the time to guess double digits, okay? You guess double digits for a guy that could throw 150 feet. You're way <laughs> off. This guy can throw over 450. And he says 16. Um, and so 16, 16, Dave. Dave. Yeah. Yeah. We're tied with one to go. We're on the final hole. I'm pretty sure this is the last one. If we had six, I think it was six, but I just didn't keep track right now. But so here we go. Let's yeah. see what happens. Interesting. Would you rather... And I know you already talked a little bit about, you know, favorite pros or who you could watch. Would you rather get your next ace on a 400-foot hole or play around with Kevin Jones? Okay. Now, you seem like you're a good evaluator or reader of people, Dave. Like, you already analyzed him right out of the gate, and you are pretty close. What do you think he's going to say? Would he rather a 400-foot ace or a round with God. Kevin Jones? I don't think he's gonna. I think he's gonna say neither one of them sound that great that they're that important to him because he doesn't care about aces because aces are not a good shot and that he's already played with Kevin or knows him or something. So he's gonna be like, well, I already played with Kevin. I want to earn it. But I'm gonna go with Kevin Jones because he's gonna say that he's on the way up. He's a thousand four and he plans to have a chance to compete heads up against Kevin Jones next time he comes to town. Okay. So I'll play devil's adv devil's advocate. I'll go with the other one. Uh, four hundred foot ace. Four hundred foot ace. So you're flipping it up. Yeah. If I'm going to allow, because I was thinking this when I do a would you rather, you can only answer like there's only two options and I'm, yeah. I would allow you to choose the same if you'd like to. No, 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 no. Where's the fun in that? Okay. So let's see what he says. Uh, I'd rather play with Kevin Jones. There you awesome. go. And... So, yeah, so I, I figured he would say that only because I, I'm 99% sure he's never played with Kevin. And uh, I know Kevin, this Kevin probably doesn't care that much about aces, but I'm not going to go with the same answer. Come on. Okay. So as far as games well, thanks go for up there, thanks for laying up and let me take it. Yeah, <laughs> don't worry. I got you. He wasn't visualizing the win hard enough. Okay. So we just, we finish out with Kevin. The game is over, but let's just see a few other things we asked him and then we're going to wrap this show up. All right, here we go. Let's get Kevin. Yeah, Kevin, back up. Two more questions. What would you say is the most interesting thing in your bag? Like disc? Anything. What's the most interesting thing you might have in your bag? Most interesting thing I have in my bag is a t-shirt. Woo. That says Big Damn Heroes. Awesome. So for any Firefly fans out there, that is the most interesting thing in my bag. And then final question, Kevin. What is the craziest thing that you've seen on the disc golf course in all of your disc golf experience? Craziest thing nice. you've seen. It can be anything. 
Yeah, I don't know. It's not a really crazy sport. Um, <laughs> Nick, he might say animals. Sit on it. We'll see. What's the craziest thing you've seen on the disc craziest golf course? Craziest thing I've seen? Ricky going OB. I don't know. I tried <laughs> to fight once to at Tully where they were in a like a four a drunk foursome and they were going off on one and i came up and was like oh do you guys mind if i throw and he was like oh we already threw and i was like yeah but it's just literally just me i'll be out of your way in a second and uh he was just like uh yeah no we're gonna go and i was like okay no i'm gonna throw and i threw and the guy uh he was just belligerent and uh I don't know what he was thinking. I never saw them again because I was by myself and they were in a foursome. And uh, he was like yelling at me um, that he would F me up in front of his kid and stuff. And I was just like, man, this this poor man. So that was that, that is crazy. After that was one of the crazy. That like, is crazy. And maybe just as a segue into our other segments, Nick, have you ever seen someone want to fight you on the course? <laughs> I have a story where I've observed a fight. Interesting topic. Thanks, Kevin, for being on the show. Thanks um, for having me. Hopefully we judged you correctly. Yeah, we'll see. All right. So Dave. I think I think technically Dave won that because yeah. I laid up on the final hole. Dave, I've said to everyone every single week, if they win, I will buy them lunch. I'm sure that I will see you hopefully when the tour kind of kicks back into full gear. I'm sure I'll see you at some point, and I'll probably throw well, you 10 I, bucks, and that will be the I'm reason the why. Assistant TD to the Pro Worlds next year. Hopefully you'll come out and be a good lunch. I would love to do that. Absolutely. So I think we're pretty much. Yeah, we're done. Yeah, we're wrapped up. I know, Dave, you, you've you got a wife and a kid that you got to get back to. We want to just say how appreciative Matt and I are to having you on our show tonight. I learned a ton, and I hope the snippets that Matt is going to create, people will respond well to them because you, you're a super influential guy in our sport. And I've thought of that about you since I did get in and I learned who you were. I've always thought that. So now we're going to do a little shameless plug. Where can the people find you on the social medias? I don't, you know, personally, I don't mess with my personal social media. People can message me on Dave Felberg, but just NADGT Facebook and our NADGT.com. I just want to have a little shout out that says, hey, it's a great tour. It took a few years to figure out the kinks. That's what good things take. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's not like I did it overnight. You know, Tony Hawk's tours weren't the best of the first year, <laughs> but we really done our best to take it to the next level by adding a staff and a board of directors. And, you know, I wish the East Coast, the areas that you live in, would get back into it like they were the first year. Yep. Everywhere else in the country is blowing up and the East Coast seems to be dragging their feet, maybe because some of the past experiences weren't as up to the par. But we've made it now where it is up to par. And I promise you, if you're playing it again and you're disappointed, I won't bug you because you won't be. Gotcha, awesome. gotcha. Cool. Well, East Coast people, be on the lookout for this. There's a holy cow, just a ton of knowledge that came out tonight. And like I said, thank you so much, Dave Felberg. This was a blast. Matt. Yeah, and thanks to my sponsors, Infinite Dis, NADGT, my wife, <laughs> and uh, uh, Pro Pool, and um, you know everybody else who sponsors the tour. You know, it is what makes it happen. Absolutely. And I just want to say, keep the money in the sport. Mm -hmm. It's the way to go if you're going to spend money. Buy something disc golf, even if it's a disc golfer making a freaking mug to drink out of. Buy yep. their mug because that five dollars might stay in the sport and help grow it. Yes, absolutely, one hundred percent. And thanks to you guys. Thanks, Matt. I want to say Nick was nice to meet you on right this. Back at you know, you. And uh, Matt, like I, you know, me and you've had dinner and stuff. You're a great guy. Keep up the kids' disc golf. Keep this going. 
you're on the right page and we need more personalities like you two. I think it's a good mix and I'd love to be on the show anytime you'll have me. Totally. Absolutely. Appreciate it. And I'm blown away. Thank you, Dave. Have a great evening and we'll catch up soon. Thanks for coming in. All right, guys. All right, guys. So we're going to wrap this up now. Um, It was good having everybody and we appreciate all of our followers and fans. And would you just comment on some of these topics to let us know what you think to anybody who is watching on YouTube to this point. We um, are going to fix somehow getting the live stream up on YouTube. Apologize. Yeah. We kind of glitched it out tonight, but we're going to try we'll figure to it out. It's it only out. week five. But like Matt said, comment, like, subscribe, check out everything. We're on iTunes right now. We are looking to be able to live stream on YouTube and Facebook. We would like to figure that out. Um, but until then, thank you again for tuning in. We hope that you guys enjoy the segment. Dave will definitely be on for future segments. This was a super fun topic. Uh, Matt and I have potentially an incredible guest next week. We are solidifying everything right now, but it's going to be fun. All right, guys. Until next time. Thanks for um, enjoying what we bring. We're having yeah, a good time. Thanks and for Nick, tuning in. You got to wake up early. Let's go. I do. Let's get out of here. All right. Bye. I'm gone. Thanks for tuning in to the Nick and Matt show. Be sure to check us out on your favorite social platform and subscribe on iTunes.